Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Wednesday. August 5th, 2009, and uh, this episode of the Survival Podcast is episode 250, 250 times, we're 25% of the way to our thousandth episode, that's pretty cool, I think I'll tell you what else is pretty cool, I want to share this with you, Um, I did a post on the forum recently, we've had over 600,000 downloads, we're almost to 700,000 since I made that post, 700,000 downloads of the show through the feed burner feed. So that's not everybody that's listened to the show. That's people that have used things like iTunes and Juice and, and Podcatchers and anything that pulls the download through the uh, feed on the site. So that means that over a million people, honestly, have downloaded the show at least. That's pretty awesome. And uh, on that note, we'll go into the intro segment today. We're going to continue it. So I think people like this. Um, if you thought I was going to do a special show for 250, note, folks, it's a Wednesday. It just happens to be show 250. It's a landmark. We mentioned it. But this is going to be a show like any other show. So we're going to do an intro segment. I'm going to talk about an ass clown, and I'm going to talk about somebody that did something right. Uh, we'll do our housekeeping, and we'll get into today's topic. Today's topic is going to mostly center around um, storing food and four rules that I've come up with for storing food that are part of an article that were published today on LouRockwell.com. I did an article. It is a horse of an article, folks. It's a. It's easily a chapter in a book, and it probably will be the basis of a chapter in the book that I'm working on. Um, so we're going to talk about those four rules of food storage and how they interplay. Before we do that, though, i got to tell you about an ass clown. Now, this ass clown has me pretty pissed off. And... Um, this is an ass clown you won't know. This is not a governmental ass clown. This is a random ass clown blogger uh, that blogs at a blog called Blogging for Michigan. And I only know her as Christy because that's all that she has to uh, indicate who the hell she is with her pseudo-journalism. Uh, this ass clown pseudo-journalist uh, wrote a piece on me about almost a month ago now. And uh, it just came to my attention. And if it said, I don't like this guy because he's a jerk, fine. If it said that I think he's overreacting, fine. If it said he said this and I disagree because, fine. You can object with me. You can, you know, I get hate mail every day, folks. I'll tell you, I get hate emails every day, at least two or three. Some of them are ramblings from tinfoil hatters that are absolutely incoherent. I delete them. I don't care. They don't make me lose any sleep at night. But if you go out and publish shit about me that is not factual, that are out-and-out lies, you piss me off. And, Christy, you've pissed me off. So I'm sure, like, your ten best friends and two strangers have read this article. Now, I'll tell you what, you're going to get some fame. A couple thousand people will probably read your article today, which are probably more people than have ever paid attention to you. But they're going to do it for all the wrong reasons. Um, let me tell you what this ass clown said about me. She started out positive and said, hey, you know, um, hey, you know, I guess I'm upper Michigan accent talking like Christine, um, but no offense to you guys, I think your accent's actually really cool. But uh, she said, hey, you know, this guy, uh, he's actually different than most survivalists because he's not a right-wing extreme, or not a right, uh, I am a right-wing, he's not a uh, racist or uh, uh, like a freaky tinfoil hat person, but he's driving a wedge between him and his audience. Um, And one of the things she said, one on the positive side is, she can't even get that right, Uh, he taught me how to go bow hunting. I've done shows on that. And he taught me how to stay warm with just a shovel and a tarp. This tells me you're a twit. You're a moron. You haven't actually really listened to my show, and you don't really know jack shit about me. So I'm hoping somebody tunes you into this show so you can listen to my rebuttal. Um, she said that I am decidedly right-wing, and I tell make-believe fairy tale stories about Barack Obama and everything he does is wrong. Now, I've been recently doing the best and worst of the ass clown. I've been talking about the positive things that the guy has done. It's not my fault that I ran out of that. As far as right wing, you moron twit, I'm a libertarian. And I've been a libertarian since the first day I went on the air. I've been very clear about that. No right winger that you could call a right winger extremist, you've compared me to Sean Hannity in this freaking article, would say, I don't care if gay people get married. 
Or, you know what? Legalize marijuana. Let's quit wasting our resources on it. All right, so on a lot of social issues, to the dismay of many of my very conservative listeners, I'm way to the left of what you'd call center America. Why? Because I'm a libertarian and I believe that the government should get the hell out of our way. I don't trust anybody. I call George Bush an ass clown equally as often as I've called Barack Obama an ass clown. You are a liar, Christy. Um, additionally, um, you said during a garden segment, for no reason at all, I just blurted out for you just out of the blue, Obama's not getting my truck, he can shove it up his ass. Um, yeah, I don't think that happened. I'm on audio. Please produce it. Um, you also said that I'm teaching people to practice isolationist survival. Now I'm pissed. All right, now I'm pissed. That I'm teaching people to go get the, the most remote locations they can, and if the shit hits the fan, just haul ass, go hide out, and leave your neighbors to be screwed. Our community online is one of the most tight-knit communities in the survivalist community. People helping people, people working together. I say often to reach out to your neighbors, know who your neighbors are. I just was on an interview uh, with, a, with a Chrissy with a brain, okay, and uh, on the uh, Truth Brigade radio, where I said, hey, I'm the guy that's out admitting who I am. I think survivalists that hide who they are are cowards. Something goes wrong in my neighborhood that's a short-duration emergency. I'm not going to turn people away. I'm going to feed the people in my neighborhood. So you go screw it. You go shove it up your ass. All right? And at the end, she closes with, I don't need to support another person who says, always vote Republican or you're going to die, die, die. I have never said to vote any way in my life to anybody ever on this show. Period. Please tell me when I did. So I'm going to make an open invitation to you, you mealy-mouthed little twit pea-brain. Come on my show. You Get in touch with me. Somebody tell this twit. I tried to comment in her blog and say these things there and not put them into my show and not give you, you know, attention you do not deserve. But your blog sucks so bad I can't register to comment on it. And I'm tired of waiting 20 seconds for every single page load. You guys can go see that for yourself. I'll post the link to this twit. But you get in touch with me. Jack at the Survival Podcast. Cast.com, Christy. Come on my show. Let's talk about these issues. And I won't be a jerk to you. I'll be ni- nice to you. I'll be cordial to you. You speak and I speak. And I will prove that you're a liar. And at the end, you will either have to admit that you're wrong or look like a twit. But I'll be nice to you. You want a platform to say stuff about me? Come say it directly to me. And let's talk about it like adults instead of you being a little coward. Alright. So I know that's kind of a personal thing, but I thought you guys would enjoy hearing that. Because I'm going to tell you something right now, folks. If you're going to be online, if you're going to be in the public eye, and somebody starts saying things about you that aren't factual, you hit them head on. You come straight back. Now, if they want to slander you, slash you, whatever, with opinion, that's one thing. When they state things as fact that are wrong, you stand up to it. You do that in all walks of life. Now, let's talk about somebody that did something right. I know this went long today. I usually don't do seven minutes with the ass clown, but... Um, I'll be brief on this one because not a lot needs to be said. As a right-wing extremist, it would be typical for me to uh, point to a person like Bill Clinton and pat him on the back and say, job well done. That's what all right-wing extremists do, and that's what I'm going to do today. Sarcasm noted. Uh, Bill Clinton went to uh, North Korea and helped secure the release of uh, two female journalists that had been sentenced to 12 years of hard labor. Now, I know a lot of people that don't like Bill Clinton will say it was a photo op, it was a publicity stunt, whatever. You know what? I'm going to ask you this. How would you feel about Bill Clinton right now if one of those two girls was your daughter? I want you to think about that. You know, it's real easy to put these people down. And sometimes when they do things that look like the right thing, they do have ulterior motives. It doesn't mean you don't recognize it. Because that's how we're going to change things in our world, is by recognizing the positive and beating the hell out of the negative. So, Bill Clinton, you are uh, my guy that I would typically call an ass clown. You did a good job. And I don't care what anybody says about assurances uh, for a former president of the United States to go into North Korea is a dangerous thing. And it took some bravery, and it took some integrity, and in spite of all the things that I disagree with Bill Clinton on, in spite of all the things that he did as our president, some of the things that I think were disgraceful to our nation, in spite of that, this is job well done, and uh, I extend my thanks to uh, Mr. Clinton. 
for doing that. Thank you. And I'm sure that uh, in spite of some slams that people will push on this, that the families of those two girls will be uh, forever grateful to you. Thank you, sir. All right, so let's get on and do our housekeeping. Um, advertiser of the day, Tea Party Silver. Uh, check out their coins. They are really unique, one-of-a-kind coins. Beautiful silver, uh, proof quality. Uh, they are minted by Northwest Territorial Mint. They sell for just a bit over spot price of an ounce of silver anyway. Something you should add to your collection. Uh, I ordered three of them before I even accepted these folks as an advertiser because I wanted to see these coins myself uh, before I even put them in front of the moderators. Uh, they're in my uh, they're in my fire safe with the rest of my silver. Um, really consider giving these guys some business. I can't endorse them strongly enough. Um, you know, I'm so anti-community and isolationist, but I would like you to uh, consider joining our survival forum and learning more and connecting with other people so that you can be an isolationist surrounded by people that are just like you. Yeah, I'm going to have to let go of the sarcasm, ain't I? Um, blog posts. I've asked people to send me blog posts. I haven't read any, read any of them on the air. I'm going to try to get some printed out today, folks. I've just been slammed at the office. I haven't been able, and I don't have a printer at the house, and I haven't been able to get the stuff printed out so that I can get away to a quiet place and read them off. Uh, once I do that, I have quite a few, and, and maybe we'll get more people participating. It's been tough, folks, the last couple weeks. Really, really a drain on me. Um, the next thing is uh, member support brigade. I come out here every day and pour it out for you guys. Sometimes I do a great show. Sometimes I know I don't do the best show, but I think I deliver 20 cents in value in every show. If you think you get 20 cents in value in every show out of uh, the Survival Podcast, consider joining the member support brigade. You get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get a $19 lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. And you'll get a bunch of uh, e-books from uh, James Talmadge Stevens. Total retail value of that is $64 to uh, support the show for $50 a year. All right, so let's uh, let's move on from here. And uh, oh, there's one thing I wanted to tell you guys about from uh, a couple days ago. And that is, uh, I posted a video of a, of a bald-headed gentleman uh, from goldworld.com on YouTube talking about why you shouldn't store your gold or silver in safe deposit boxes. And what he said was under the Patriot Act, that under like a bank holiday where the government might go into asset seizure, that they could now open your safe deposit box and seize your gold and silver as assets. And people went and read the Patriot Act and said, Jack, I don't see this anywhere. It doesn't doesn't jive. And I thought, oh, crap, I've been had. This case seems so legitimate, uh, seems so authoritative, seems so knowledgeable, uh, it seems so right on. And this guy's been on, like, Fox News and at CSNBC, MSNBC and other major news networks, so I figured this guy was, was dead on. So I did some research into it, and I had just gotten to the point where, man, I'm going to have to go on the air tomorrow and tell people that's not true. Ignore it. And then I found an article. Uh, I'll give you guys a link to it in today's show notes that explains it, and it makes a very compelling case for why this gentleman is correct. And I thank him for putting this out there. The Patriot Act doesn't mention the gold and silver. See, the United States government, during a bank uh, holiday, if it was declared, already has the authority to go in and seize assets. They've had that for a very, very long time. No one doubts that. But the terminology used to describe it is any financial relationship between the financial institution and its clientele. In other words, your bank account is a financial relationship, which makes that open to government to go in and look at. Alright? What the Patriot Act specifically does that affected this is redefine what a relationship with a financial institution is. And it redefined that relationship to include safe deposit boxes. And the reason this article said it was done is because, oh, like the terrorists might go out and plant you know, a thousand bombs in a thousand safe deposit boxes. I think that's crap. And the person who wrote this article is very informed. They are a person that is uh, in the banking financial industry and specifically uh, addressed the, uh, the the concerns of safe deposit holders um, and actually trained banks on their policies around the safe deposit system. So this is not a clown, right? This is a, the authoritative guy that's explaining why this rule is in effect, and he's actually somewhat supportive of it. Now, I think he's an ass clown because, right, if I'm going to put a bomb in a safety deposit box inside a vault, not going to do a whole lot of damage there, uh, Frankenstein. Come on. But um, 
apparently this checks out. Um, I know this is off the, the subject, but I needed to cover this because there's going to be a lot of people asking me this question. Where does it say in the Patriot Act? Look for the part where it redefines what a relationship with a financial institution is. That's the piece. And again, I'll give you a link to this article written by this guy that's both smart and an ass clown at the same time. Because I don't, again, I just don't think if you're a terrorist looking for maximum kill ratio that putting your bomb inside a box, inside a vault is a good idea. Uh, Alright, let's get on a debate subject today. Okay, so I had an article uh, published for today on LouRockwell.com, which is a big honor, and thank you, Lou, for doing that for me again, publishing my work. It's always an honor to be on your site. And it's on food storage. And uh, what I'd like you to do is go have a look at the article. I'll put a link to it from today's show notes. Circulate it. Send it to your email list. Get as many people to look at this article as possible. When I have articles on LouRockwell.com, I like to be number one for the week and possibly number one for the month. I like my articles to get good readership because part of my feeling is Lou does a lot for me by publishing my work. I want people to come to his site and get the rest of his messages, which is far more political than mine. So I want to give back. And that's why I want to make sure that I am a leading contributor when I put content on the site. So please help me do that. Um, but here's the gist of the article. I, I, I came through really four rules, and I, best, I guess I would call them five. Uh, my conclusion really should probably be rule number five. But these are the rules that I follow for storing food for modern times. And rule number one, I don't think will come as a surprise to anybody. It's an old rule. It's been in the prepper industry for as long as there's been a prepper industry, and that's eat what you store and store what you eat. But you need that rule as the crux of things to move forward with to make the entire process work. If you don't start with that, the whole thing will break down. I mean, and here's my rationale for that. Let's say you have a family of, of three, mother, father, child. And you decide, oh crap, I'm unprepared. I need to be prepared. So then you're going to go out and you, you phone up, you know, any supplier that supplies things like Mountain House or uh, provide pantry or Yoders. You say, here's what I need. And you put together a full package for me that will provide me enough nutrition for 90 days for my wife and my son and myself. And they say, no problem. And they talk to you and they help you and they consult with you and they put together a nice little package and you send them, I don't know, $1,500, $2,000. And they send you some buckets and pails and cans and cases. And you put that all in a closet in a dark hole and you just leave it there. And you know it's good for at least 10 years. So, okay, now if anything happens, I have 90 days worth of storage. It's just not a very good way to do things, folks. I'm sorry. In of itself, it's weak. And we're going to get to that rule in a second where you do store things like that. But what that means is when the shit hits the fan, not only are you under all this undue stress, you're now eating things you've never eaten before. You have no idea the flavor, the quality, the preparation methods. You're relying on something that's just been sitting off idle. And it doesn't help you in your life today if nothing goes wrong. It breaks rule one of a modern survival philosophy. Everything you do to improve your situation should make your life better, even if nothing ever goes wrong. It doesn't fill that role if you just do it that way. Now, when you store what you eat, there's a couple things that happen. One is you mitigate inflation. If you are storing what you eat, and you buy, let's say, a year's worth of spaghetti sauce today, um, just as a random example, I'm not saying to go out and buy spaghetti, but you buy a year's worth, um, over the next year, you don't pay the inflationary cost of the rising cost of spaghetti sauce. Now what you'll say is, oh, but Jack, when you eventually run out or you resupply, you will pay the higher cost then. You haven't gotten away with it. I said you mitigate, not eliminate. And what I mean is, in between the times you make your purchases, the price continues to escalate and go up up, up. You will eventually pay the higher price, but you won't pay the higher bumps in between. That will successfully mitigate your inflation. And then the other thing that you do, um, or, or the other reason to do this, is a lot of people are in fa- families and households where there's one spouse going, yeah, we need to be prepared, and we got another spouse going, I don't think so. I think you're crazy. I don't know what happened to you. You're not the person I married. What the hell is going on? You've been listening to all these crazy people on the Internet, black helicopters, whatever. We don't need to do this. Well, say When you can go to them and make the case that I just made to you, look, food goes up in price. We need it anyway. And 
and uh, let's just go buy the stuff we already buy, and let's just store it, and then, you know, maybe we don't have to go to the grocery store every week, and if something does go wrong, we do have it. If we lose power, we have all this additional food that's not going to spoil. And we're going to eat it anyway, so we're going to spend the money anyway. It's a soft sell. So it's an easy way to get an un, um, an uninitiated spouse on board with some level of food storage and food preparation. At the same time that you are doing something that's giving you a positive return of investment. Uh, there was an article that ran a year ago that said between 2007 and 2008, the price of 16 consumer goods in the grocery store uh, that most people eat every day rose by 11%. And that trend has continued right into this year. Ups, downs, left, sideways, markets on its back, markets doing better, markets on its back, real estate up, real estate down, oil up, oil down. Prices of food in the stores have just continued to go up. So how's an 11% return sound you compared to how much money uh, if you kept your stocks and didn't dump them last year like I said you should have? How's that 11% sounded? It's a good investment. Right? It's a very compelling case. So that's why we start there. Additionally, it's just easier. It's just easier to have, you know, this expenditure go to something that you're going to buy anyway. It's easier to justify. It's easier to make happen. And you're not nuts to have more than you need of what you're going to need eventually. So it just fits. Now, then you move into rule number two. Take advantage of opportunity buys. All right? That's that's rule number two. Take advantage of the opportunity to buy. Now, look, everybody that's an ass clown that writes, you know, how to st- ten ways to save money, says, you know, go to discount stores or look for items on sale or click coup- clip coupons or what have you. So I'm not going to belabor that. It's, it's a true statement, but it's been said so often and so much it becomes redundant. All I'm saying is as you're stocking up, take it to a new level. When there's a sale on something that's going to store well, that's in the center of the grocery store, doesn't require refrigeration, and your family uses it regularly, don't buy two, buy ten. Put them into your storage rotation. Plain and simple. So start taking advantage of the opportunity to buy as you ramp up. Now here's what's interesting. When you get to about 90 days of self-sufficiency, a 90-day food supply, that, that means you've done something beyond what's in your Your pantry will not hold 90 days. You've got bins somewhere, extra shelves somewhere, stuff under a bed. I don't know. You've got stuff and you're going through a rotational uh, arrangement with a 90-day food supply of food that you would eat anyway. Something magical happens that takes the opportunity to buy and kicks it into overdrive. If you regularly buy, you know, XYZ product, so nobody focuses on the, the item itself, but there's a product you normally buy weekly. You go to the grocery store this week, you have a 90-day supply of it at the house, and the item's not on sale or it's gone up in price unexpectedly, the opportunity is you don't buy it because you don't need it. And you wait. And if you're into coupons, and I'm not, but God bless my wife, she is, you, you clip coupons, and when you find a coupon for it, then you make the purchase. Or when the item goes on sale, you make the purchase. And what you'll find is over a 12-week period, or a 90-day period, that almost every item that you buy will spend some time on sale, and you only buy it then, because this should be obvious for people, because they look at food storage as being crazy, eccentric, nuts, don't get it. If you have 90 days or more of a supply of something, you never need to buy it now. So you have the opportunity to wait for a good price, a good buy. So those are the two prongs of the opportunity buy. Um, The next rule, rule number three, is once you get 90 days of food storage, now start to really look at integrating long-term storables into your supply, but use them as adjuncts and extenders. As an adjunct, what I mean is, yeah, go buy some uh, dehydrated chicken from Mountain House, but occasionally open up a can of it, right, and use it when you cook something. So you use all fresh goods, but you use some dehydrated chicken, or use some dehydrated vegetables, or use something from these things occasionally. Open a can and work your way through it, and then buy one to replace it, and create rotation there as well. This stuff does store a long time, but... It doesn't last forever. And if you start using it as adjuncts, you'll learn the ones that you like more and the ones that are more useful, and you'll get accustomed with their their methods of preparation. And if you end up in a shit-hit-the-fan where you're under stress and you have to rely on them, you're not teaching yourself a new skill while you're in deep shit. I mean... 
cut and dry, point blank. There's, you know, the the, the way to look at that. You, it's not the time to be learning something new, like. You know, what do you do with this stuff once you get the can open? Make it part of your day-to-day living. Inside of this group of long-term storables are the things like the Mountain House, providing pantry, uh, Yoder's Meats, all this stuff. Stuff you can get from Safe Castle Royal and ready-made resources. Also are the MREs. The MRE has a limited value. It, it, it's only so useful. It's bulky and it's expensive comparative to these other foods. The other things are things that you can either store yourself easily in a purged five-gallon bucket or buy already set up that way but are very inexpensive. These are your grains like wheat, spelt, rye, um, oats. Uh, these are things like your various dried beans uh, and, and rice in, in a proper good storage container. These things last almost indefinitely. When you look at how long hard wheat, winter red wheat berries in a five-gallon bucket with a sleeve of mylar, with an O2 absorber, with a, with a sealed lid on top of it, how long that can last, you'll die before that food's inedible. And that's not an exaggeration. So you bring some of those in there. Now, this is where I've seen some of you guys go a little off the deep end. Right? Wheat's so inexpensive. You know, if you buy it yourself, the bucket costs more than damn near than the wheat that's in it. So they end up, people end up storing like 20 years worth of wheat or something like that. And, and then you're never going to use that much wheat if nothing goes wrong. So just like the Mountain House or the Yoders, and hey man, try the Yoders bacon. I gotta, gotta tell you, buy yourself a couple cans of that stuff. If you like bacon, you're gonna like it. Um, but just like you should be using that day to day, occasionally open up one of these buckets and start to take from it. Buy you know, three buckets worth of rice and have one of them in your pantry and routinely take from it. And then when that one is empty, it might take a year, year and a half, and rice is going to be fine, folks. It's okay. not going to go bad in the pantry if it's sealed up. Right? It doesn't have to be all perfect in the one that's in the pantry. And when that one's empty, pull another one out, refill that one, you know, purge it, put it in the back of the rotation. Learn to use whole If you're going to store whole wheat, learn to use whole wheat. If you're going to store to use beans, learn to use beans. You know, you can go out and put a variety of buckets together with beans. Those little one and two pound packs, not the most cost effective way, but beans are cheap anyway. So you can have a five gallon bucket with 20 different varieties of beans in it, maybe two packs of each variety. And you have that available and you open them and use them as necessary and make them part of your cooking. Same things with pastas. Pastas last very long, stored in a similar way. Um, so all I'm saying is with all these really long term, inexpensive or commercial specialized long term storables make sure that you're actually using them and I say to try to strive for a ratio of about 60% um, everyday foods supermarket foods that are going to store well and 40% these long term storables and that ratio is going to give you a lot of flexibility and a lot of portability and a lot of options for all the different scenarios you could ever have to deal with from bugging in to bugging out including those long-term storables are often very efficient in space and weight. And if you have to bug out, you can take an awful lot of caloric value with you in a relatively small space. So those are uh, the reasons that I have for you know saying to view these things more as adjuncts and extenders than just something you put off in a closet and wait for the end of days to come with. Um, rule number four. Something you've heard from me in various forms before, uh, become a producer. And being a producer when it comes to food storage has two decided sides to it. Uh, the side one is all the things that you would consider a direct production. Side two is anything that you do for preservation. And I probably should have flipped it in the article and done it the way I'm going to do it right now, now that I think about it, and explain the preservation side of production first. The preservation side of production, it doesn't matter where the actual food came from. It could have come from anywhere. If you go to the store and you get a great deal on a, a bunch of beef and you take it home and you slice it up and you turn it into biltong or you pressure can it and you use it for, you know, you make, you make a big, huge vat of beef, um, beef soup out, you know, beef and vegetable soup out of it and you can that and put that up or whatever you do, 
it's still you've taken over some of the production. You've saved the cost of the commercial production facility that would have taken the beef and made a much less much more inferior quality product for you and then charged you more for it. So you could make a huge amount of canned beef uh, that will taste great used in a variety of ways for a fraction of the cost of going out and buying a canned beef product off the shelf in a supermarket that's really a subpar poor quality product. And you've developed the skill of preservation. Um, beef turkey is expensive. You can make your own even from fresh meat and save a lot of money. Biltong you can't even buy. And I'm not going to talk about biltong today. I'll tell you to look it up if you don't know what it is. It's the most amazing way in the world to preserve red meat. And you'll become an addict if you ever make any of it for yourself. If you make it right, that is. Um, so, side one of production is simply preservation. This could be smoking, salting, pickling, fermenting. Um, root cellaring, anything like that, uh, is, is a production side of storage. Because you're not just going out and purchasing an item made to store. You're actually converting an item that would otherwise not store into an item that now is part of your storage. And now you've become producer instead of consumer. Now you have advantages a typical consumer doesn't. Let's say you go down to the farmer's market. And in front of you is, is a huge harvest, uh, late fall harvest. And you got the last of some really beautiful green beans and the first uh, of some wonderful snow peas or uh, sugar snap peas and a big pile of broccoli. And the guy has so much, it's such a big time, and he needs to move it, so he's selling it there cheap. Now what the consumer does is he buys a little bit of everything over the next week or two. He has really good fresh produce uh, at a really great price. And then the harvest season ends, and that food's not really there anymore, and he's back to the supermarket. The producer goes in and says, give me a ton of those, a ton of those, and a ton of those. Takes that stuff home, and he dehydrates it, stores it in jars, cans it, stores it in cans, blanches it, and stores it in the freezer. What have you. He eats really good, fresh, un- unpreserved produce for the next two weeks, just like the consumer, but he also has now extended his storage pantry for months with vegetables that he bought at a discount because he bought them at the peak of harvest and therefore the peak of freshness. Think about that. That is part of being a producer. Now, the other side of being a producer is what I talk about more often. It's direct production. Direct production takes on a variety of forms. Uh, hunting and fishing are one. Wild foraging another. Planting crops, both you know, agricultural and permanent, is really the next one. It's re- and then livestock. Those are your primary methods of direct production. Of the all, hunting and fishing is the most limited. I love to hunt and fish. I'm not putting anybody down it doesn't. If you're proud that you put protein on the table from the field, either with a fishing rod or a rifle or a bow or a shotgun, trust me, I'm proud to. And I'm proud that I can put some of the food that goes into the stomachs of my family there from some old traditional ways that actually involve me getting out and personally taking care of it. But if we're honest about the way we assess this, there's there's a huge limit there for a variety of reasons. One, if, if the shit ever really hits the fan, our fish and game are going to come under immense pressure almost overnight. People are going to go out and start relying on it and there's going to be less and less of it available to all of us. And that's going to happen very, very quickly. So that's going to be a finite limitation. Even if you're in a down situation personally, you've had a financial turmoil or something like that, and you're you know lucky enough to live in a rural area and at least you can keep the lights on and possession of the home, if you're going to turn to the field for food because you don't have money, it costs money to go out and hunt and fish. And you can do it very affordably, but it does cost money. You have a problem of access. You have a problem of seasons, right? You can't go out and shoot a deer in June just because you're hungry. Uh, it violates the law, and we don't do that. And there's reasons for that law, too. Now, if you're going to die without doing it and you're in a real survival situation, obviously that's different. But day-to-day, can't do it. Um, and, you you know, overall, there's just a, a, a major limitation there. So, the best thing that you can do with your fish and game gathering is whenever you can do it, do it as efficiently and affordably as possible, and then take on phase two of production and preserve it. Turn that venison into biltong. Smoke that fish. Right? Um... Learn to make jerky out of fish. Believe it or not, it can be done, and it's pretty dead gone good. Especially if you're blessed and you live in a place where you can get your hands on trout or salmon. 
Uh, salmon jerky is one of the most amazing things I've ever eaten. So learn these different methods of preservation. Canned venison is pretty good stuff, especially the stuff that's generally pretty tough, like shoulder and hocks and all. You can that stuff for the pressure can. It gets very, very tender. Excellent in stews. Goose is can squirrel. Excellent for making uh, stew in the future. It shortens the time because you take, you know, go out and save your squirrels up until you have a nice good pile of them for processing. Quarter them up and can them in quarters with the bones in. And then when you go to make stew out of them, it'll take you 30 minutes to make stew with them. So take those two preservation or two production sides and put them together. But just understand that's the most limited. The, 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 the next descending in limitation is foraging. And this is you are going out picking blackberries or blueberries or in the fall going out and picking up beech nuts or hickory nuts or um, any of the thing miner's lettuce and lamb's quarters and all the stuff that's out there uh, that we can just go out and find. And there's a tremendous amount of food. In the winter, a lot of times right on the side of the highway, um, when the grass is dead, you'll see massive swaths in a lot of the country of wild onion or wild garlic, and you can go out and get your hands on that and, you know, get a couple uh, huge clumps of that. And uh, pickled pickled wild garlic is pretty freaking cool stuff. Uh, it can be used in a lot of different dishes and flavors. So all that stuff's out there, but again, we get in a real shit hit the fan, food becomes really scarce, everybody's going to rely on it. So that's going to push the, the, the limitation down. Just like hunting and fishing, there's seasons. And there's not a season where it says, okay, you're not allowed to go out and pick a blueberry right now. Right? There's no law that says that. But blueberries only come into fruit at a certain period of time. Same with blackberries. You're not going to go find a lot of beech nuts, hickories, and pecans in March. It's not going to happen. Not there. Right? So you have those seasonal limitations to when the food's available. You still have to find access to places that, you know, it's okay for you to go out and forage. So there's lots of limitations. So, again, this is another great method to take and p- take preservation production and marry them together. Go out and pick those blueberries and dry them and make a version of a raisin out of a blueberry. Very cool. Can be rehydrated for cooking or can be snacked on or part of a trail mix. And you can do that. I'm not going to go through all, but you can do that with anything. The next level of production is where you start to do farming and permanent crops. And this really takes it up a level because now you control it. Now it's right in your backyard. You can expand it as you need to. right? And you have that direct production. Last night I went out in my garden. I didn't feel like cooking or anything. I was a little bit hungry after I got home. And uh, some of my gypsy peppers had turned nice red. So I just picked three or four of them and sat out and had a beer uh, on my back porch and ate some of the peppers right off the plants. And, and, you know, there's nothing more natural than that. But if now, you know, let's say in September when it starts to cool off around here, and I've got like 27 pepper plants of various varieties in the ground, they're going to go nuts. Right? They're all doing really well, but way better than they did last year. I'm having a great year with my peppers. I'm getting a lot more, you know, hot season production out, which is not a good time. When that cooler weather comes, when that temperature drops to 80 degrees as a, a daily high, they're going to go nuts. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be dehydrating. I'm going to be freezing. I'm going to be canning. I'm going to be doing all kinds of things just with peppers. So again, that's going to go into my food storage plan. Then on top of that, and this is something I'm not doing yet, but I will as soon as we move to Arkansas, and that is some level of livestock production. The chicken is probably the perfect animal. It'll produce eggs every day for you. Uh, it's very inexpensive to feed, high-quality protein. Uh, with breeding and reproduction and using some for meat, you can have basically from a small group of initial chickens a, you know, completely and wholly renewable food source. Goats, and you can make cheese and have a supply of milk. All of these uh, different livestock, rabbits, are renewable food sources. Then a lot of the things that you do with your agriculture produce byproduct that they can eat. So they're almost completely self-contained, self-sufficient. So that's the being a producer part. Now, the last part, the conclusion here is that you don't seek magic bullets like, again, the, the, the 90 days worth of mountain house would be a magic bullet. I'll just buy it, stick it away, and forget about it, and I'm done. And if anything ever happens, at least i got three months' worth. That's a magic bullet solution. It doesn't work very well. Hopefully at this point you can see how limited that solution is compared to an integrated solution. So seek a holistic solution. Apply these four rules and all their subsets simultaneously 
Slowly over time, at the end of a year or two, you've built up a very robust solution, and they help each other out. Again, a very simple way of understanding this. I take advantage of the opportunity buy because I go to the Kroger store, and they're running a meat madness sale, and they have beef roast on sale for 99 cents a pound. And I go, hey, dude, there's not enough here. Go get me 100 pounds of beef. And I go home, and I make 50 of it into uh, canned beef, and I make 50 of it into biltong. And for $100, I produce a massive amount of stored protein in a very, very easy and very, very inexpensive way. All right? So those two now build off of each other. And they do more than either one. The opportunity buy could not do that without the production side. The production side couldn't amass 100 pounds of meat without the opportunity to buy. They work together. They're interdependent upon each other. And it also works this way. If something really bad happens, the worst of the worst, some of the things that we talk about and say, not likely, but if they ever do, we're really in trouble. Complete failure of the electrical grid. Total destruction of the United States economy. Massive, real, true pandemic killing millions. Any of these things that really destroy modern society for some longer period of time. Because you're using them together, you're able to use one to compensate until the other one's strong enough to keep you going. For instance, if you have six months' worth of stored food, when the shit hits the fan, you have six months to ramp up your foraging, your hunting, your gathering, your agriculture, your permaculture, your livestock. You have six months to get all of that done before you actually have to rely on it. So you don't have to try to get all of that done from a standing start and survive with it. In other words, if you have food right now, setting up things in the future so that you can continue to have food is easy. It's simple. Anybody can do it. You'll figure it out. If you're out of food today and you need food today or you're going to starve tonight, getting more food is very, very difficult. And when you put these together, you avoid ever being in that situation. When the shit has truly hit the fan, with six months of storage, you have 180 days to find other methods of sustenance that are sustainable and to get them running and working. And if the shit hits the fan in January, you can't grow a lot of things other than what maybe you already have uh, protected and growing. So you can't immediately ramp up production. You need that time. Six months of storage you have until June to have some production level coming in from some other thing. You have six months for things to sort to balance themselves out and society to start putting itself back together. And, and something that would keep us broken down for more than six months is not very likely. But even if it does, you're prepared for it. And all along the way with these things put together, you're living a better life today. Because the person with that type of society, thing set up in life, has freedoms that normal people don't. If you're set up that way, you're a lot less afraid of losing your job. You're a lot less likely to make a decision that you're going to regret. You have a lot more independence from the system. You're no longer simply a gerbil in a wheel like most Americans. And it all starts with food storage. Uh, I think I'm going to wrap up there. I was, uh, you know what, let's talk about the colony real quick here at the end. It's 40 minutes, long show, but hell, um, traffic was a bear today, so I'm not quite to the office yet. I can pull into the parking lot and finish up. Um, but... The Colony last night, and if you haven't watched this show, The Colony is one of these latest reality TV shows. I think it's pretty cool, and I know a lot of preppers are coming down on it because, well, some of the people, and I'd say a lot of the people in this show that are, um, you know, these survivors are idiots. Well, folks, they're supposed to be idiots. We're supposed to be learning not just from what they do right, but what they do wrong. By putting in idiots there, we get a lot of opportunity to learn about what they do wrong and to learn from that. Well, last night, uh, let's talk about some of the things they did that were accomplishments that made things better for them and improved their position. One, they built a shower. It seemed like it took a lot more effort than it should have to me, and they were a lot more worried about building something that was pretty and, and very, very aesthetically pleasing when the, the handyman guy built kind of the, this, built this thing outstairs on like a loading dock, put a window in it and stuff like that, and I'm just thinking, you know, what he did could have been done a hell of a lot faster 
and uh, you're, you, they know they're only going to be there 10 weeks, and they're already trying to figure out how the hell they'd get out of there anyway. So you're not building a castle when you build your shower. Uh, that was, like, the downside of it. But they did come up with, you know, they found an old hot water heater. They don't have electricity. Uh, they painted it black. They put it up on a roof. They, they found some old, uh, like, uh, like radiant barrier-type insulation-looking stuff. Uh, they, they created a reflector behind it. They created a wood frame. They wrapped it in a plastic wrap that they were able to find and scavenge. And uh, that created a hot water heater uh, that used the sun to raise the temperature of the water. And they were able to take showers. Uh, first showers they took after like 16, 17 days of living this way. I'm sure it was a big event for them. And I'm sure they really appreciated that shower uh, more than they might have realized that they would have. And it is important because they, you know, their point was we got to make sure that we're not ending up with a lot of diseases. We're running around in this nasty river water and we're doing all these things. We're getting grimy and dirty every day. Um, disease is the thing that supposedly caused the uh, disaster in the first place, a virus. The last thing we need is disease here. So I don't fault them for coming up with a shower. I just think they could have uh, done it a lot quicker. Uh, they used a lot of electricity in this period, a lot of power tools. I think they need to learn to rely more on hand tools. This guy was cutting plywood with a resupplicating saw, uh, building his little castle of a uh, of a shower, while the hand uh, the other guy, like this uh, uh, other handyman guy, is trying to uh, improve the generator so it'll produce more electricity by adding a second alternator, and he's draining the battery banks down while the generator's not running. So that was stupid, and a lot of the women seem to be really stupid with running around using power tools for no real reason at all. Uh, the next thing is they went out and picked a bunch of citrus. Uh, they had noticed the citrus trees on the way in. My question is why didn't they do they'd run that scouting mission sooner? And they got a ton of citrus and brought it back, and that's a lot of nutrition and uh, gives them quite a bit of uh, sustainability beyond what they had. So that was good. They also managed to catch a fish. A girl built a... Uh, a fish trap that she had learned, uh, some uh, mesh that she had learned to build in the Peace Corps uh, when she was overseas. It actually worked. They were able to catch one fish, and they were the most retarded fishers, fishermen I've ever seen in my life. They're running around this part of this L.A. River, which is really gross and contaminated, but they figured, well, we could eat the carp and tilapia because they're lower on the food chain. We're not going to be eating them every day. So going ahead and getting some additional protein that way is probably a good idea. So they run around with a stick, and one guy's there with a bow trying to shoot him, and this guy's out there with the trap. The guy finally chases one of the carp into the trap, and they get one carp, and they go home with all their arms in their carp. All right. Fine. You got one carp. Now, I'm just thinking, right, and I'm not big into the primitive survival stuff and primitive skills, but I'm just thinking based on what I know about fish. What if you went and this hour and a half that they spent chasing one fish, an hour and a half of running around like idiots, exposed to the marauders, which are these people who harass them and steal from them and damage their stuff. All that time you're out there exposed, running around like a bunch of idiots. There's like eight of them out there doing this. What if everybody grabbed, uh, I don't know, Ten rocks in ten minutes. And uh, eight people, that's 80 rocks. And you use those 80 rocks to put a big V blockade in the river, put your trap at the end of that funnel, and then get everybody to go upriver and walk downriver and chase the fish into that V. I bet you they could have got... With as much as they were showing fish swimming in this nasty river, or these carp and tilapia, I bet you, you could have got a really good pile of fish uh, with that very simple approach, but none of them were able to figure that out. Again, remember, we're supposed to learn from what they do wrong, but here's the big one. These people have not paid attention to security. Um, they've, they've been lulled into a false sense of security. There's this one uh, computer programmer guy, old guy, looks like Santa Claus. He's a tard. This is one of these peace guys. I can't believe that other people would take from me. Uh, well, gee, Ace, a week ago, you went out and stole from other people. So why would you think they would steal from them? Um, the one guy that's kind of like a hard-ass, uh, kind of a guy with no real uh, formal education. He's around a lot of these uh, PhDs and uh, college people and computer programmers. But he's the one that's getting all the really important things done. Uh, this kind of like do-anything handyman guy. He was saying we need to do something about our security. There's a, a piece of constant, you know, a piece of our wall that doesn't have any Constantina wire. We've got Constantina wire. We need to get it. Everybody else thought the other projects came first. So, guess what happens? Um, these Marauder guys show up and start beating on the front of their thing, starting fires outside. They want a fire extinguisher to go put the fire out that's outside. They're in a metal building. There's a fire in the middle of a parking lot. Um, it's nowhere near their building. Burning 
crap and garbage in the middle of a party. They're worried about putting that fire out, and they're worried about all the banging these guys are making. That's all of them. Nobody, nobody secures the rear. Run to the front. The marauders break in over the the wall. Um, where the casino wire needed to be replaced. They come in the back door of their facility, which they forgot to lock, and they shut the, the middle door and lock them out, and then they steal a bunch of their food and destroy a bunch of their food. And now they've lost all that. And now they're all miserable. Well, what are the mistakes that we can learn from the security that they did not apply here? Number one, they have all their food in the middle of a great big room that's not secure in any way, shape, or form. All right, just sitting out in this huge open bay on these shelves that they put together. The food, there's plenty of like smaller rooms in this big giant complex that they're in with doors that could be secured. Their food should be behind a secured door. Duh. There should be OPSEC at all times that the back side of this facility and the front side of the facility at night when this raid occurred are locked. Replacing the Constantina wire, they showed them doing that right after the raid. It looked like it took them about 15 minutes to replace that one little two-foot section of Constantina wire. That should have been done. Duh. All of them were sitting around together when the raid happened in one place. There should be two or three people 24-7 posted on guard duty at the weakest points of the compound, able to help secure the compound. All right? And that's just the minimum. When they they attracted the marauders during this long excursion for citrus and fish, where they were coming back like they looked like the Goonies from the old Disney movie, on their way back down this river basin, lollygagging their way through. And they haven't figured out yet that these marauders are running around on motorcycles. There's a lot of ways to disable motorcycles. Um, they don't want to, obviously, this is a game, right? So you don't want to really harm people. But there's a lot of things that they could have done by now where if those motorcycles came into their area, they would absolutely shred their tires. Why they haven't done that, I don't know. Maybe because they're more worried about building a really nice wall for the shower that they put together. So I, I think that we're seeing a lot of what not to do on this show, but I don't want you to take me the wrong way. I really, really like this show. If they were showing us ten people that think exactly the way that we do that we're prepared for this, it'd be pretty boring. Because we'd be sitting there with our guns... And we'd have, you know, two years worth of food if you put ten of us together uh, and told us that we were in a shit hit the fan and a bug out to this place. And uh, these motorcycle guys, we'd be gut shooting us some Hondas at a minimum, uh, putting these guys out of commission really fast. And we, all we would be doing is sitting around eating and engineering stuff the way that these guys are with no fear, with no intimidation, and with plenty to rely on while we figured out how to get more. That's pretty boring TV. It's the way to be if this shit hits the fan, but it's not going to help people figure out how exposed they are. I think this show's doing a good job of that. So I wanted to finish up with that. I have 50 minutes now. Jeez, I need to wrap up. Uh, I've been sitting here in the parking lot for the last five minutes. Uh, that's probably why the sound got a little bit better. Uh, but uh, I thank you for tuning in again. Hopefully this show covered a lot of ground and a lot of different things. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. This has been Jack Spierko uh, with the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 